Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. In our last episode, we explored the ascendancy of a law and order candidate who defeated his major party opponents in the 1969 Minneapolis mayoral election. Charles Stenvig was a Minneapolis police lieutenant who ran as an independent, promising to crack down on civil disobedience and crime by, as he described it, taking the handcuffs off of the police. Minneapolis had experienced racial unrest during the summers of 1966 and 1967. Protests against the Vietnam War were taking place at the University of Minnesota in the late 1960s. Crime was on the rise and voters were uneasy. Into this tableau came Stenvig, whose victory challenged the widely accepted notion that Minneapolis was a liberal and progressive city. Stenvig was re-elected to his second term in 1971, as concerns about civil unrest and crime persisted. In this episode, part two of our look at the politics of law and order. In the early 1970s, University of Minnesota students took to the streets to protest the war in Vietnam. Gary Prevost, a retired professor of political science at St. John's University and the College of St. Benedict, was a student activist on the U of M's Twin Cities campus during that time. I arrived on campus in April of 1970. I uh, became active in the anti-war movement, Uh, worked with an organization on campus uh, called the Student Mobilization Committee, and in the wider uh, case of Minnesota, helped to found what became known as the Minnesota Peace Action Coalition, of which I served as its chairperson at various points in our anti-war activity, which lasted um, through uh, January of 1973. Anti-war protests at the U began in the mid-1960s and expanded during the latter part of the decade into the early 1970s. Prevost recalls an incident in the spring of 1970 in the Dinkytown area adjacent to the U of M campus. I was living about two blocks from there at that time, and that was occurring in April of 70, before Nixon invaded Cambodia. And there was a a plan to build a, a Red Barn restaurant, that chain that no longer exists, in a spot that I think is today occupied by the post office on Fourth Street Southeast. And yes, um, there was initially an occupation and then they came in and cleared the people and bulldozed it to the ground, you know, the site. And then by by the end of that day, they had created a people's park on the site. And yeah, that protest was going on and during the, right in the middle of I think then after Cambodia happened and during the, the week of the major stuff going on around Cambodia, was somebody connected to that protest drove a junk car through the front door of the Red Barn down at Oaken, Washington. Th- those things were happening because uh, it was a you know a kind of tumultuous times. Uh, that was more what I might have called a, a counterculture. Um, movement that was parallel to the to the Vietnam War that you know that was focused on what they called you know corporatization of America. Uh, I was always focused on the war and was involved with anti-war organizations. But yes, that, there was a, a a simultaneous occurrence of those 
those events with the big events of the uh, Vietnam period, which ultimately led to a march of probably 30 to 35,000 people from the University of Minnesota to the state capitol on May 9th, 1970, um, at the end of that week of the, of the uh, Cambodia upsurge and the, and the student strike. Two years later, the U campus experienced its largest and most violent protests of the Vietnam War era. The demonstrations became known as the Eight Days in May. A student-produced weekly show that aired on the U's radio station documented that tumultuous time. The wave of disturbances was set off Monday night when President Richard Nixon addressed the nation to announce changes in American military policies concerning Southeast Asia. The killing in this tragic war must stop. By simply getting out, we would only worsen the bloodshed. By relying solely on negotiations, we would give an intransigent enemy the time he needs to press his aggression on the battlefield. There's only one way to stop the killing. That is to keep the weapons of war out of the hands of the international outlaws of North Vietnam. I have therefore concluded that Hanoi must be denied the weapons and supplies it needs to continue the aggression. In full coordination with the Republic of Vietnam, I have ordered the following measures which are being implemented as I am speaking to you. All entrances to North Vietnamese ports will be mined to prevent access to these ports and North Vietnamese naval operations from these ports. United States forces have been directed to take appropriate measures within the internal and claimed territorial waters of North Vietnam to interdict the delivery of any supplies. Rail and all other communications will be cut off to the maximum extent possible. Air and naval strikes against military targets in North Vietnam will continue. In response to Nixon's announcement on May 9, 1972, Prevost says student activists plan protest activities on the U campus. Of course, 1972 was the second major upsurge of anti-war activity that occurred at the University of Minnesota after I arrived there. I mean, I know the anti-war movement there goes back all the way to 1965 when one of the first large teach-ins was held. Probably actually the biggest mobilization occurred in the spring of 1970, right after I came when Nixon invaded Cambodia and student strikes exploded across the United States, including at the U of M. But two years later, the war was still continuing in 72. And Nixon in that month of May made the provocative decision to put mines in the harbors of Haiphong, North Vietnam, which in the eyes of many threatened a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union, which was the primary backer of North Vietnam. And in many ways, it, it just seemed like an escalation of the war at a time when the war should have been de-escalated. And as a result, uh, student protests um, emerged immediately on campus. I remember in the, one of the, the demonstrations uh, that week um, went to the governor's mansion in uh, St. Paul, for example. And the biggest thing that we did was the notion of 
blocking roads became a big deal. The main thing that we did was to occupy Washington Avenue in front of Kaufman Union, which also is a federal highway, and basically closed it for several days during that week of activity in the second week of May in 1972. We also were intent on potentially taking demonstrations off campus, but we were well aware that there were real challenges if we did that in terms of confrontation with the authorities. And as a result, I was part of the leadership that in general tried to to keep activities um, on the campus, but those activities out of the control of some of us uh, turned uh, into um, petty vandalism and that kind of thing, the burning of a, a car, for example, that made national news over by the what was then the Newman Center on University Avenue, and ultimately led the National Guard to be called out onto the campus. On May 10th, 1972, protesters assembled in the Dinkytown area near campus, There was an Air Force recruiting center nearby. The protesters shouted slogans and prepared for a march down University Avenue to the Armory Building. And I hope you people will stick around because there's a lot of imperialism around us and there's a lot of people here willing to fight it. One, two, three, four, Vietnam's a thousand war. Five, six, seven, eight, nothing to negotiate. One, two, three, four. The university's president at the time, Malcolm Moose, was out of town during the disturbances. Eugene Eidenberg was the university's acting vice president for administration and was in charge during Moose's absence. While he sympathized with the student protests, rumors were circulating that there were plans to burn down the armory. Based upon that information, Eidenberg called Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig and asked him to send Minneapolis police to campus to quell the unrest. This was an unusual request since the university has its own police department, but Eidenberg feared that small police contingent could not stop the destruction. Larry Davenport was a student in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications and a contributor to the U radio station's weekly program, The Hour. He filed this report on the unrest near the armory. I'm standing on the roof of the Newman Center across the street from the armory. A line of about, I would guess, 30 to 40 riot police is moving in now. The demonstrators have built a steel fence barricade blocked up by drums and by by mailboxes and things. Here come the police. There's a crowd of perhaps 500 people getting very militant. Debris damage. I see a couple of demonstrators picking up clubs from out of the debris. The police have formed into sort of a flying wedge, into a V formation. They're uh, just a little bit down from 17th Avenue. Ultimately, then-Governor Wendell Anderson sent in the National Guard to help restore order. Another focal point of the demonstrators was Washington Avenue, a major arterial route through campus. University of Minnesota Professor of Political Science and African and African American Studies August Nimitz recalls the scene on Washington as protesters set up a barricade. I remember coming out of my class 
that afternoon headed back to my office. And uh, when I got to my office, I opened uh, the door, went in and looked out of the window. My window overlooks the Mississippi River and where the Weissman uh, Art Museum is now in Kaufman Union. And, and from my uh, window, I could see the police and the masses in the streets. People had taken over the street in front of Kaufman uh, Union and blocked that off. And uh, there were the police uh, campus and the city police and lots, lots of tear gas. So it was all I could do was get out of my office to go down and actually see what was taking place. And so, yes, I was not a part of the, the organizing effort itself. I was really a spectator uh, to what was taking place. And of course, there were investigations that took place uh, afterwards. Uh, I think President Moose, Malcolm Moose was the president. I think he was out of town uh, when this happened. And there was some debate about whether or not uh, the person who was substituting for him uh, would have given permission or not to bring in the police from the city. Evidently, that was a unique uh, event in terms of a, there was no precedent apparently for it, where the uh, city police had actually been brought in to deal with the something on campus. Now, whether or not it's because it was on Washington Avenue, which was a main thoroughfare uh, going between uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis, uh, whether or not the mayor felt uh, he had the authority uh, to control that space is, uh, is another question. Student reporter Larry Davenport described the scene on Washington Avenue for the radio show The Hour as police moved in to disperse the demonstrators with tear gas. I'm moving partially with the crowd here I'm under the one of the bridges across, the, across Washington Avenue. Apparently they're driving the police line back. Apparently, I can't tell for sure. Pedestrian bridges overhead are jammed, crowded with people. The street is filled. Thousands of people out in the street right now. They're clearing people off the bridge. Police are clearing people off the pedestrian bridge over my head. Eggs, I saw some more eggs being flown. Police are moving back again. Students who've been gassed are going into Ford Hall. I saw a couple of them cleaning, trying to clean their watering eyes out in a drinking fountain. There are a number of police uh, on the bridge overhead. They're looking at the students below them. And it looks like, yeah, the gas masks are coming out. Police are putting on gas masks. Police are putting, putting on the gas masks above the bridge. People are getting out their wet claws. The claws are going over the mouth. Several people have already been, been maced. They're backing up from the bridge. There are two, four, six, eight officers up there with gas guns, with the gas guns and the mace. I'm proceeding on down away from it. The smell of mace is in the air. The eyes are starting, starting, to, starting to water. Okay. They're coming. They're moving on down the street. I'm going down onto Washington. I'm in front of the old chemistry building, the addition, moving around. I'm moving in front of the crowd. Most of the crowd is going up onto the mall. I'm underneath the pedestrian bridge nearest the Washington uh, Avenue bridge across the river. I don't know if they're going to come to my position or if they're turning. Most of the students are going up, going up onto the, onto the banking there. A gas bomb right near me. There it goes. 
was within feet from me. We're running away from it. One student's trying to pick it up. He's throwing it back at the police. He's throwing it back. Big ass bombs going off. Firing all over the area. Police are hurling them back at the demonstrators. I'm behind the line of demonstrators. Smoke up in the air. They're coming off the bridges onto the far side by the Union. Running down the street now to avoid the cloud of gas coming. Police are charging up the bank. I'm temporarily, temporarily backed off. Hopefully safe. We're going up along River Road. Running with, running with several, several of the demonstrators up here. Coming up around the back. Coming up onto River Road. Demonstrators are coming out. I'm crossing the street in front of the science classroom building. Heading for the Washington Avenue Bridge. Trying to get out of the gas fields. Uh, clouds of blue CS gas rising up uh, near the university. A strange sight on this warm Wednesday afternoon. As the chaos subsided, Davenport spoke with a student who doubted that the protest would accomplish its objective. By midnight, demonstrators had barricaded Washington Avenue at Church Street with fences, construction equipment, boards, telephone poles, barrels, and other miscellaneous gear. Governor Wendell Anderson requested that the National Guard be mobilized, and units of the military police arrived on campus to secure the recruiting center and the university armory from the protesters. About 1 a.m., I talked with a girl sitting alone on the curb just behind the barricade. Are you going to be manning the barricades when and if the police come? Uh, yeah. How long have you been here? Uh, about an hour. I work at the hospital. I was here uh, between 3 and 4, and then I had to go to work, and I went to work, and I watched from the windows, and I really got uptight about the whole thing, and that's why I came back. Are you working with the medical personnel here, then? I'm an aide at the hospital. I go to school, too. Do you think that this is going to do any good, or are they just going to drive through it, or what's going to uh, happen? It's not going to... You mean politically? Politically, it will do no good, no. But a lot of people have a, a lot of emotional anger that they have to let out. That's why they're here. That's why I'm here. And it's not going to do any good as far as the work is concerned, but... If it's not going to do any good politically, do you think it's worth it for a lot of people to get busted and injured? Yes, they have to do it. They have to do it. That, that's... There's a personal stand, then. Yeah, there's a personal stand. It, it's not, they, they, I think most of them know it's not going to do any good. But they have to do something. They have this emotional buildup, and what can, what, what can they do? You know, they, they have to do something. The 1972 unrest at the University of Minnesota took place during the second term of Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig, who cited the protests as a reason why the police needed to crack down on militants. And while Stenvig lost in the 1973 mayoral race, he did win a third non-consecutive term in 1975, capitalizing again on his reputation as a law and order mayor. University of Minnesota professor of political science and African and African American studies August Nimitz says he's not convinced that a law and order approach will work as well in the 2020 campaigns as it did in the late 1960s and 1970s. I don't think so. Uh, if the polls are any indication, you may have seen today's New York Times, uh, the article about uh, which poses that question to some degree, uh, specifically focusing on quote unquote suburban, suburban white women and the, uh, the poll focused on uh, Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin. And uh, according to the responses uh, that the pollsters got, it doesn't seem that the law and order the law and order angle 
that uh, the Trump administration is uh, hoping to uh, to push doesn't seem to be getting the kind of response, at least according to what people reported in that poll. So I think there's a big difference too between the 1960s and uh, today, especially amongst young young people. And, and the thing always to keep in mind is that the protests uh, today around uh, police brutality, they are so much more multiracial than they were in the 1960s. In the 1960s, those protests were almost exclusively uh, African-American. In fact, uh, if you were a Caucasian, uh, you were in some cases taking taking a risk uh, with your life if you decided to be try to be a part of those protests. They were exclusively uh, protests of African Americans uh, since uh, nineteen. Uh, well, let's see, at least the one we had in nineteen ninety two uh, was a multiracial uh, protest, and certainly beginning with the Black Lives Movement protests in 2012-2014, the ones here in the Twin Cities have always been uh, multiracial. And the one, uh, the first one for the George Floyd, yeah, that was um, a majority of the participants were were white. And so it's a big, big difference uh, between the United States in the 1960s uh, and, uh, and today. Uh, there's been a change in racial attitudes that are the product in many ways of the protests, the mass movement, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. That's, that's changed attitudes uh, quite a bit. And that's why this George Floyd protest was so significant. And it took place throughout the United States, small town, small town America uh, participated uh, in, those, in those protests. And that, as I was telling my students recently, you think about 1920 and uh, 2020, 1920 Duluth, 2020 Minneapolis. And uh, in 1920, uh, people actually came out in the streets and applauded uh, police murders and lynchings. Uh, there were pictures taken of them. And uh, uh, 2020 is a very difference. And so you have to explain what happened between 1920 and 2020. And of course, uh, the civil rights movement and the uh, the moral high ground it took uh, in the 1960s was crucial in understanding uh, the change in public opinion. And so, uh, so yeah, so I think there's a, there's a big difference uh, between the two. And there's another factor too, especially with young people, and that is the, the disappearing American dream. In, uh, in the 1960s, if you were a white American, uh, you could talk about realizing the American dream, uh, you know, coming out of high school, getting a job. Uh, if you were in Austin, Minnesota, for example, and Gary, Indiana, and uh, Midwest uh, industrial town, uh, you could realize the American dream in a way you can't today. And so the pie was still expanding uh, in that period, and that's no longer the case today. So people are much more uh, less trustworthy of, of government and less likely to buy into, I think, the law and order rhetoric of George uh, Wallace and, uh, Richard, and Richard Nixon. It's a, diff- it's a different period. While Stenvig and former President Richard Nixon successfully capitalized on voters' fears of civil unrest and crime, 
Retired St. John's University and College of St. Benedict Professor of Political Science Gary Prevost shares Nimitz's skepticism about the effectiveness of a law and order platform in the current political climate. That's well, very interesting. Yeah, I, I saw what the what the Trump uh, campaign uh, was doing um, in the wake of these, you know, momentous events here in Minneapolis and around the country. I saw immediately how um, they pivoted from statements of of outrage, which Trump used at, at, at what uh, was done to George Floyd. His initial response was, "That's a horrible thing. Should not have. Should not have happened." Um, but then, almost immediately, uh, pivoted uh, to focusing on the the violence and the and the chaos that occurred in some cities uh, following uh, George Floyd's death. And of course, including here in in, in Minneapolis, uh, complicated events which included the role of white supremacists, uh, opportunistic looters, and and the like. So I was, yeah, very quickly uh, with with good historical memory and being a political scientist, I said, yeah, he's he's trying to replicate. Uh, 1968, he's trying to replicate um, the campaign that especially built off the chaos that came at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where the what later was called a police riot uh, pulled off by, you know, overzealous law enforcement, but which really, in a sense, went into the living rooms and, and uh, to on the television sets of many Americans and, and, and laid the, the groundwork for uh, Nixon's, uh, for Nixon's campaign. Uh, I'm not sure that political scientists have ever been able to definitively say that that was what won the election uh, for Nixon, because there were many different factors, including um, a very disingenuous uh, campaign promise that he had a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Now that secret plan was to not to end the war, but to dramatically increase the training of South Vietnamese allies, so-called Vietnamization, to continue to try to accomplish the same objectives. So I've always been, see, I've always been somewhat skeptical that there was definitive proof that that was key to Nixon's victory in 1968. It was one of a number of, of things that, um, that, was, that was present. There's, there's no question, it, this appeal in 2020 will connect. But I think, though it's not the hope of the Trump voters, I, Trump uh, campaign, I think the hope is that it will expand Trump's base. And that's the question mark. I don't think there's any question, but it fits very well with Trump's base. But they're going to vote for him anyway. So as a political scientist, it's really a question of whether <clears throat> this stance will expand the base. It's, you know, it's, it's seeking to appeal uh, to suburban voters, especially women, who have uh, increasingly, at least in the polls and in the 2018 midterm elections, abandoned the, the Republican Party and have voted, voted Democratic in the hope that this would um, uh, 
concern these voters enough that the that this violence could spread to their to their suburbs and to their communities it, that's the you know that's the hope um, so far the polling that i'm seeing uh, doesn't indicate that uh, that that's happening but um, we'll only know for sure when the election actually occurs Thanks to retired St. John's University and College of St. Benedict Professor of Political Science Gary Prevost and University of Minnesota Professor of Political Science and African and African American Studies August Nimitz for sharing their perspectives on the events of the early 1970s at the U of M and the politics of law and order. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. The recent death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is triggering a vigorous debate about the process of appointing a new justice within weeks of a presidential election. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota political science professor Timothy Johnson joins us to discuss Justice Ginsburg's legacy, her potential successor, and the future of the Supreme Court. That's all for this week. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.